listening to Alison Krauss, and it breaks our heart to end a song before it's over when Alison Krauss is singing just about anything. She's just that good. And we tell stories about everything here on the show. We love music. But we also tell stories about life and death, and particularly death, uh, and not in a morbid or terrible way or a tragic way. Uh, what comes to mind is Arnold Palmer's funeral, which launched our Final Thoughts series. And my goodness, the funeral eulogies were just spectacular. What comes to mind most is Jack Nicholas sharing his thoughts about his pal. And it made everyone laugh, and it made everyone cry. And then Vince Gill stepped up, and he just made everyone cry, singing Go Rest High Up on That Mountain, which it turned out was Arnold Palmer's favorite song, and so many of ours. Well, this next story is about Peter Panagore, and he was a college student ice climbing in Canada on his spring break when a near-death experience transformed him and his faith forever. This is his story. A month after my 21st birthday, I traveled from Montana up to Alberta, Canada to ice climb on a world-famous ice pitch. At 8 o'clock that night, the temperature dropped drastically. Since we had no equipment to keep ourselves warm, our best bet for survival was to try to get off the mountain. It was 150 feet down, and we repelled in the air on this overhang to a large area. We were stuck. And I was cold, though, and I'd never been that cold. And I had frostbite on my fingertips and my nose and my toes and my cheeks and my chin, and, and I had hypothermia. And, and, and then I, I fell asleep. And, and, and only this time, I didn't lose consciousness, but I knew that I had fallen asleep. And, and, and I felt myself being sucked out of my core like a vacuum and I resisted with all this strength that I had that I had built up through the survival journey that I was on and I tried to stay in my body and I couldn't it, it irresistibly pulled me out and I died and I found myself in a great dark void infinite without a body, but with full consciousness, like a, like a, a sphere of, of consciousness. And, and in front of me, if I had a front, was this gigantic door. And the door was 30 yards wide and 70 yards tall, and it was a, the proverbial tunnel that people talk about was through this gateway. And I said, am I dead? And the voice of God, with no voice and no language, said to me, yes, you're dead. And I said, but I haven't gone through the door yet. And, and the voice of God said, no, you haven't. I said, well, do I have to go through the door? I have this sister, you see, that left our family and broke my mother's heart. And I didn't want to break my mom's heart again and die and leave them and God said and showed me showed me he said the, the love with which I love you now I have always loved you and that same love that I love you with now I love your family and I love each person on earth with this fullness of love and forgiveness and knowing and mercy that you feel right now and beauty and all will be well and your family will be okay. And the next thing I knew, 
I was being screwed back into my body like a like an ice screw that you used to put into the ice to hang on, and it was painful and it hurt, and I got driven into my body from my stomach, and I I came to, and my partner Tim had me by the shoulder, and he was he was screaming at me, "Don't die, don't leave me here," and uh, I kept my mouth shut about what had happened for close to 20 years. And now I'm telling this story because what it's left me with is that I know that I'm known and I know that I'm beloved and I know that you are too and everybody is. And I know that this is not the end of life, that this is just the passage through to real life. And it's this long and that's how much time we have. So we get to go home. And I'm waiting to go home. I pray for it every day. I can't wait. That's my story. And that is Peter Panagor. And again, he was a college student when this happened. But my goodness, it's still with him. And by the way, we don't shy away from these stories, as you well know. When somebody's got a faith story to tell, we tell it. When they don't, we don't. But we don't edit them out. You're too smart for that, and you're too good and decent for that. And this is a country founded on faith. And the choice is to not choose faith if you don't want to. Freedom of conscience and free will. That's what are the foundational pillars of this great country. And, of course, for so many of us, a belief in God. Peter Panagor's story here on Our American Stories. And if you have stories, end-of-life stories, near-death experiences, and eulogies, which we adore here on this show, because in the end, it's life, and it's a biography, and it reminds us that one day we're all going to die, and what will that eulogy sound like? What will yours sound like? If you've got a beautiful one about a loved one, we'd love to hear it, send it to us, we'll produce it. If there's one about somebody that we should know about, send it to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Again, Peter Panagor's story, his near-death and death experience, here on Our American Story. our American stories and that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell and she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal and for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal and one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell and her latest question How often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. 
Well, you know, I need Heidi, a cup of coffee right now. I, I need two, and I, I drink soda, so I don't drink coffee. I get my <laughs> caffeine from Coca Cola, but you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll we'll oh. have to. I know it's gross, but let's talk about how did where, why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more that the the devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the, you know, the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch. And in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for 15, 20 years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the question was like, whose are these and why are they so attached to these? And is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug sitting in there for years? Yeah. And by the way, it's not only that you can't use them. Some people won't even let you look at them or touch them. It's so personal. <laughs> no, don't look at my mug. Do not look at my mug. <laughs> I mean, you get attached to these things. They're hard to find the perfect mug. I, I, I understand that. So, so tell me this first, Heidi. Do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days? I'm the worst because I, I get my coffee from the guy at the cart, and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh my goodness! I don't have a mug. Oh my goodness! Well, this this, is, this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And and <laughs> what's the worry here, Heidi? You, you you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? <laughs> There are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't. There's never been a case as far as the NIH or, or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were there was a, a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug is cool. It's your mug's fine. Your so mug, so you what about that? Fine. You know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the. Uh, the office coffee mug talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never ever replace it and you know it would start to get him nervous talk about that also talk about navy sailors who take really great pride in what i call or what you call seasoning the mug seasoning the mug i like that i love this um so so i was talking to uh you know this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yeah. part of your column. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew these people existed? Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some, if you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug. And that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, 
it, your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee. So, uh, so yeah, so it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the, of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. doesn't harbor germs, doesn't harbor infectious disease, hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you, you know, you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of like, gross. It is kind of, but here's where it gets grosser. Dr. Stark, this is, I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi, and I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them. But here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious. But haven't you done that where you like... I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning, then he leaves it in the car all day, and then the next morning he's like, meh, and he'll just drink his coffee from the car. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff, the lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out, and then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office. Um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat. And then I'll leave it underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's oh. done it again. And there's all kinds of things growing oh in the car. Gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food <laughs> in the fridge it's good for a week. No, I don't Coffee think so Coffee from either. yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know, uh, how should we wash our mugs? And how often should we wash them? Okay, so well, this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with like a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says like, a lot of people said well, there were some, a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes or on one of those on like mulligan ones and um, culligan ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office, besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that they clean the, you know, the place they clean the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your... Um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But 
you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Well, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Pizza Dan- Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the Personal Journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories, and one of the things we do on this show is focus on American innovation and ingenuity. And here's one story that highlights the kind of value American manufacturers offer the world during times of peace and times of war. It's not a truck. It's not a car. It's a Jeep. And here's Sarah Moore to bring us the story. Go anywhere, do anything. This is the battle cry of America's most heroic 4x4 civilian vehicle. The legend of this vehicle began on the brink of war. It was originally known as the Willys MB, or the 4GPW, but soon after its production and use earned the affectionate nickname from American soldiers as the Jeep. It was developed by American automotive engineer Delmar Barney-Ruz. This first make featured the Willys Go Devil engine. Writer Doug Stewart noted that this vehicle was a four-wheeled personification of Yankee ingenuity and cocky can-do determination. 
And that's because the Jeep became the primary light-wheeled transport vehicle of the U.S. military and its allies in World War II. President Eisenhower once called it one of three decisive weapons the U.S. had during the Second World War. It was also the world's first mass-produced four-wheel drive car, manufactured in six-figure numbers. About 640,000 units were built, constituting a quarter of the total U.S. non-combat motor vehicles produced during the war. Large numbers of Jeeps were also shipped to the Allied forces, nearly 30% of total Jeep production. Some 80,000 Jeeps were provided to Russia alone during the war. And that's more than Nazi Germany's total war production of their Jeep counterparts, the Volkswagen Kubelwagen and the Schwimmwagen combined. Horses, bikes, and sidecars had all become obsolete in this new age of warfare. And the U.S. Army had asked for help. American manufacturing was set to deliver. The first model, with 60 horsepower and 105 foot-pounds of torque, not only exceeded the Army's requirement, but dwarfed the Bantam's 83 and Ford's 85 pound-feet of torque, its only competitors for the military contract. Willys produced over 300,000 MB vehicles in the first year. The Jeep was so versatile that it was used by every single division of the American military. That's 144 Jeeps provided to every infantry regiment. George Marshall, U.S. Army Chief of Staff during the Second World War and later U.S. Secretary of State, described the Jeep 4x4 as America's greatest contribution to modern warfare. World War II reporter Ernie Pyle once said, It did everything. It went everywhere. Was as faithful as a dog, strong as a mule, and as agile as a goat. It constantly carried twice what it was designed for and still kept going. One Jeep was even awarded a Purple Heart and sent home. The Jeep's name was Old Faithful and it was retired on Bougainville recently after having traveled more than 11,000 miles of jungle terrain as a command car. During its 18 months service, Old Faithful served four Marine generals as well as carrying every ranking Marine officer and visiting official on the two battle-torn islands. But the Jeep had been awarded a Purple Heart for holes in its windshield, received during the Japanese battleship shelling of Guadalcanal on October 13, 1942. Today, it remains a true war relic. For a 75th anniversary, any car company can tell you about the milestones they've reached. But only one can tell you about Old Faithful, the jeep that stormed the beaches of Guadalcanal, and the grateful soldiers who fought by its side that put it up for a Purple Heart. Without the jeep, there's a good chance the Allies would not have won the Second World War. Even in its first five years of existence, there were a number of distinct models for different military uses. The first Jeep model was called a Quad, and the Quad was the father of the MB, CJ series, and Wrangler, all used in the war. 
MVs could be loaded into transport aircraft for rapid deployment and were also small enough to fit into the large gliders used in the D-Day invasion of Europe. Over the course of the war, customized field kits were developed for winter and desert conditions, deep water fording and other combat needs. But because it was so versatile, it wasn't just for war. The Jeep was also for peace. After World War II ended in 1945, the first civilian model was launched, making it the first official American SUV. The thing was a piece of art. It made heroes of entrymen, but it was also a workhorse. In fact, outside of combat production, Willie's MB hoped to put literal farm workhorses out of a job. According to research done at Willie's, there were 5.5 million farmers in the U.S., and of these, more than 4 million had neither truck nor tractor. The rugged and versatile CJ-2A was marketed by Willie's as the all-round farm workhorse. It could do the job of two heavy draft horses, operating at a speed of 4 miles per hour, 10 hours a day, without overheating the engine. The CJ-2A Universal, as it was called, was to serve agriculture and industry all over the world in a thousand different ways. But back to war. In 1950 and 1951, the M38 military model was launched for specific use in the Korean War. Talk about ahead of its time, the M38 had a waterproof ignition system. During that conflict, Willie redesigned the M38 and it became the M38A1 with a longer wheelbase, softer ride, a more powerful engine, and a new, more rounded body style. In production through 1962, Willie's also produced the M170, which was designed to be fitted with several different body packages. But because passengers were somewhat enclosed compared to earlier models, the M170 was also used as a field ambulance. This model of Jeep was more agile and efficient than a tank, and they could also be fitted with 30 or 50 caliber machine guns for combat. They were widely modified for long-range desert patrol, snow plowing, telephone cabling, saw milling, as well as firefighting pumpers, field ambulances, tractors, and with suitable wheels, they could even run on railway tracks. The demand on the Jeeps for both civilian and military use, led to constant improvement in ingenuity in the American economy. The model may change, but the Jeep is an American icon. And what a story this is. I mean, when a five-star like George Marshall says that the Jeep was America's greatest contribution to warfare. That's, well, that's not hyperbole. And I love what Ernie Pyle said about the Jeep. It did everything. 640,000 units, folks. And my goodness, 80,000 to the Russians alone to help, to help fight off the Nazis on the Eastern Front. And we couldn't have won the war, as everyone knows, without Russian help. When we come back... More on the life of the Jeep, this great American product, company, innovation, and war machine, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with Our American Stories, and we're about to hear more on the next stages in the evolution of America's Jeep and the national pride that it affirms and instills in the lives of so many Americans. There's one family in particular we'll hear from on their love for the Jeep and its powerful symbolism of the true, rugged, and adventurous American spirit in their lives. Let's return to Sarah Moore. Most people don't know that Jeep also brought America's first completely steel station wagon to the scene. The Woody look, as it was called, was Willie's wagon. And the wagon's fold-down tailgate hatch can be credited with the origin of the tailgate party. Most station wagons of the day could carry 4x4 sheets of plywood horizontally, but only Willie's could store them vertically as well. A washout interior could be cleaned almost as easily as a kitchen sink, one of the ads stated in October of 1950. When four-wheel drive was added in 1943, the Willys wagon became the front-runner of the Grand Cherokee. The Brooks Stevens designed wagon was in production nearly 20 years, longer than any other contemporary American automobile of its day. Now today, these early Jeep models are collector's items. Mark A. Smith is one of those collectors. He helped popularize Jeeps as recreational vehicles and historic artifacts. Besides test driving Jeep prototypes on the Rubicon Trail for Chrysler, he conducted training for law enforcement agencies and U.S. military special forces, and he also designed driving courses for off-road testing. I purchased my first, which is a World War II surplus for $500, and heard about the Rubicon Trail, and with another friend that had one, we made a trip over the trail. Very impressed with the capabilities of the Jeep vehicle. The first is in 1952, Willie CJ2A. The really interesting thing about this one, it's got 43,000 original miles, my first was at 52, just exactly like that. The total price was $1,752, including license and tax delivered. The next is a World War II uh, Willys built to Marine Corps specifications with ring hooks for loading aboard ship and a very unusual service manual on the inside of the hood. The one directly behind me is the Bantam, which goes back, it was one of the first prototypes delivered to the military. To World War II, the Army put out requests for bids on light reconnaissance type vehicles. And there were only three manufacturers that responded, and each one of them were given a contract to build 1,500 of them. This is one of the early 1,500, totally restored. I have the Willys MA-1, which was one of the pre-World War II's, and it has a history. It was sunk in a landing craft in Saipan. A Navy supply ship happened to spot it while they were anchored there. They sent divers down, recovered it, cleaned it up, got the salt water out of it, and put it aboard their supply ship for the rest of the war. When the war ended, two sailors from El Dorado County uh, happened to be in that one when going on Liberty. 
and it was never returned to the supply ship. We have possession of that one now. The one with the machine guns, it was uh, copied after the British Special Air Services, which were a terrific harassment to Rommel during World War II. There were about 80 of these that were outfitted for desert warfare. And uh, one morning in 1942, I believe it was three or four of them, hit this German airfield in Africa, charging up and down the runway, blew up something like 32 German twin-engine bombers, including one that was just landing. Then they scoot off in the desert. And something rather interesting, if you notice the color on it, it's pink. And I was told by a member, former member of British SAS Special Air Services, that they, they would paint them with pink paint. And then while the paint was still wet, they would throw sand on them to get the dull desert look. Because they're, the way they would attack me early in the morning with the sun behind their back, there were no windshields, there was nothing on them to give any glare. They would be gone on missions for three to five days, so they had to carry food, ammunition, and water for that period of time. And if you noticed on the front, there's a little unit that would save condensed water because water was so scarce in the desert. I have a 1947 Willie CJ-2A fire engine, but rather interesting unit. It only has 7,300 miles on it. I bought it sight unseen on the east coast of Massachusetts. And uh, as I understand it, the factory would, of course, send it to the manufacturing company that made the fire units. They would put them on and return them to the factory. Then the factory would sell these to dealers. They have my CJ-7 that I did the expedition with. It's a stock factory vehicle. The only thing we put on that was anything different to get through the jungles were a little bit bigger tires. And of course we had Ramsey winches on them. We did have bridging ladders. Without the ladders, we would have been a good extra 30 days in the jungle. We, when we do, were doing the Darien Gap trip, we were prepared to take 90 days to go through the jungle. We were able to do it because of the expertise of our crew and experienced four-wheelers. We were able to go through in 30 days. I also had a 1950 Willys Jeepster in mint condition. Very beautiful, sporty little vehicle. It's more of a classic than a off-road vehicle, but it was one of those that Willys, I believe they made them for three years. Mark created the sport of jeeping. And he himself was a Marine in World War II. Well, I'm Jill Smith, and I am Mark Smith's daughter, and I'm currently the president and CEO of Jeep Jammer USA, Mark Smith Offering Incorporated, and I grew up on the Rubicon Trail. We did the Rubicon Trail, and we felt that this could be a, a trip that would help the economy of our area, so we started Jeep Jamborees, which was started in 1953. In uh, 1954, Willie's Jeep joined us on the trip, and ever since that time, Jeep has been a part of the Rubicon Trail.
got my driver's license when I was 16 and in June. And I remember Dad saying, you're driving the Rubicon, you're driving the Jeepers Jamboree this year. And I said, Dad, I just got my license. And he said, you're driving it this year. And so I knew that was not an option to do anything other than drive that trail. He said, if you make it to Spider Lake, I'll fly you in by helicopter from there. And uh, I was having so much fun by the time I hit Spider Lake that I ended up driving the whole trail. Right. We uh, were contacted in 1992 by Special Forces U.S. Army to do off-road training to teach them some of the things that I had done and uh, set up a training program for them, bringing them in here on the Rubicon. It turned out to be Delta Force. And uh, they, uh, they still do come and do the same type of training that we did and occasionally are still running the Rubicon. My father has been the greatest influence on my life. I, my adventurous spirit comes from my father. My independence comes from my father. We're recording this, I hope. <laughs> my love of the world and travel and adventure and my sense of freedom and fearlessness comes from my father. I think all of the Jamborees, they've been good. There's something new and different you see every year. Expansion of Rubicon Springs. And the one thing, of course, at this point, we own and basically control half of the Rubicon Trail plus Rubicon Springs. It will always be open to the public. There's a certain camaraderie between Jeep owners, and once you're a Jeep owner, a true Jeep owner, you always are. To this day, the Jeep remains an icon of strength and innovation. And times change, but icons are forever. It's a Jeep thing. And great work by Sarah Moore. And what a story. Mark Smith, by the way, did continue four-wheeling until he passed away, and that was on June 9th, 2014. But his legacy remains, just like the legacy of the historic four-wheeler he so deeply loved. And by the way, it remains in his daughter, Jill. And what words to hear as a father, my goodness. And you can hear the dad interrupting her uh, when the audio was playing earlier. But she said, my greatest influence in my life was my dad. My adventurous spirit came from my father. My independence comes from my father. My love of the world and travel and my sense of freedom and fearlessness come from my father. And there isn't a dad in this country who wouldn't love to hear his daughter saying those words. And by the way, the Rubicon Trail was originally a Native American footpath. The Rubicon Trail was used by explorers in search of a clear path across the Sierra Nevada. And today, well... Jeep owners call it their own. The story of the Jeep, the story of Mark Smith and his daughter, here on Our American Story.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And if you have a story to tell us, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we've got a well of a tale to bring you right now. This story brings the elements of nature and explosives together in a way that only our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, can explain. This infamous tale of an exploding well just happened to occur in his home state of Oregon. Here's Jesse. On November 9th, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore on the central Oregon coast, just outside the town of Florence. After all these years, it's amazing that this thing has come back to life again. But every once in a while, it pops up. It's an aroma that still lingers. It was one of the worst smells I've ever encountered. Words cannot describe the smell. It was in my nostrils for a solid week. The whale carcass remained rotting on the beach for over a week, and nobody knew what to do about it. It was too big to bury, it stunk too much to cut into smaller pieces, and burning it was out of the question. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite. George Thornton was the engineer in charge of the operation. Well, I'm confident that it'll work. The only thing is we're not sure just exactly how much uh, explosives it'll take to disintegrate this so the scavengers, seagulls and crabs and whatnot can clean it up. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left, and uh, we may have to do some other cleanup, possibly set another charge. Thornton was chosen to remove the whale carcass because his supervisor had gone hunting that day. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. As word spread across town, crowds began to gather. I'm thinking we got big trouble here. 20 cases of dynamite. Walter Umenhofer, a military veteran with explosives training, happened to be in the crowd. He warned the crew that the 20 cases of dynamite was an overkill. 20 sticks would have sufficed. But his advice went unheated. This guy says, anyhow, he says, I'm going to have everybody up there on the top of those dunes, far away. And I said, yeah, and I'm gonna be the furthest SOB down that way. They made a big spectacle of, of, of waving their hats, the hard hats in the air, and we're clear everybody away and all this, all clear. The dynamite was buried under the whale on the leeward side so that most of the mammal would be blown towards the sea. The crowds of people that had come to see the whale be blown to bits were pushed back a quarter of a mile to safety. The dynamite was detonated at 3.45 p.m. What you're hearing are the chunks of rotten whale blubber raining down on the spectators. Walter Umenhofer saw it all happen. 
and they touched that sucker off, and let me tell you, that thing went up and it was the biggest mushroom cloud you ever seen, and it was red and white and black, and it was nothing but guts and blood and gunk. Carried by strong coastal winds, a cloud of putrid whale fluids moved inland. So everybody all of a sudden start realizing that, oh my God, here it comes in this mist. We were covered, we were permeated with redness and the smell. Those who witnessed the explosion agree that the next few moments seemed to last forever. It soon became apparent that what should have been little pieces of whale turned out to be big ones. And this stuff starts hitting the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden you realize, my God, I could be killed by whale blubber here. And I'm watching this one piece. There's a big piece up there. It's kind of flubbering and floating around. And we ran. We literally ran. And it just absolutely stopped. And it came flat down and kapow. Right on top of Walter Amenhofer's 1969 Oldsmobile. It was a neat car. I just got it from Dunham's, and it was a Regency. And, and like I say, the funny thing about their, their, their slogan is it was a whale of a deal. Well, I got a hell of a whale of a deal. <laughs> Within two days, the state of Oregon wrote Walter a check for the full retail value of his car. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds, yet only some of the whale was disintegrated. The majority of the whale carcass remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division to clean up. Due to damage that was caused to local property, whales that are found beached in Oregon are now buried where they're found. And you may be wondering what happened to the man who decided it was a good idea to use 1,000 pounds of dynamite to blow up the beached whale, George Thornton. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left. In his official report back in 1970, he declared the operation a success, which helps to explain what happened to his career just six months later. He got promoted. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, to Jesse Edwards, who always manages to find these quirky and yet, ultimately, American stories. And I just loved hearing the voices and the sound effects. My goodness. I just keep thinking about the smell. And as always, you can send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org if you've heard of a quirky one like this, or you've just got a personal one that you'd love for us to tell. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Exploding Well of Florence, Oregon. That story here on Our American Story. stories and we're joined now by one of our favorite best-selling authors 
and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, Brad Meltzer. His most recent book, The First Conspiracy, is his first stab at nonfiction, and it's about a secret plot to kill George Washington. I found this story nearly a decade ago in the place where all good stories hide, which is in the footnotes. And I remember going through that footnote and seeing the words that said something like there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. And I remember stopping on that and going, is that real? Is that fake? Is that nonsense? What is it? And it was real. In 1776, there really was a secret plot to kill George Washington. When George Washington found out about it, he gathered up those responsible. He built a gallows. He took one of the main co-conspirators and he hanged him in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, was like, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. And uh, I became obsessed with this story. And the first thing I did is I went to Pulitzer Prize winning author Joseph Ellis, who wrote one of the great George Washington biographies. And I said, you know the story about to kill Washington? He said, I know the story. He said, but the reason it's hard to research is it's a story about George Washington's spies. And you can find out, he explained, exactly how many slaves George Washington owned, but you'll never find all his spies. By its nature, he told me, what you're searching for will forever be elusive. But he said, you got to try. He's like, if, at the best case scenario, you get a book out of it. At the worst, you, uh, you have an adventure. And I love an adventure. And I'll tell you that the first thing I did is I called my friend Josh Mensch. And when we did a TV show, many people know my, the shows that I used to do on the History Channel. One was called Decoded and one was called Lost History. And one of the things we did on Lost History is we searched for lost historical artifacts. And on the very first episode, we told the story of the famous flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero on 9-11. Everyone knows that famous photograph of the firefighters raising the flag. Well... We the flag 24 hours later went missing and it was gone for over a decade and we wanted to get it back. So we told the story of the missing flag, who had seen it last, where it was. And four days after that first episode aired, a man walked into a fire station in Washington state and said, I saw the show lost history. This is the 9-11 flag. I want to return it. It actually worked. And we spent nearly a year authenticating this flag. We worked with the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit. They, we got to uh, authenticate it and unveil it in, on the 15th anniversary of 9-11 in the 9-11 Museum, where it is still on display. One of the most amazing, humbling moments of my life. And, and the truth was, we got a lot of credit for it, but the credit was for the whole team. And that team was led by a man named Josh Mensch, who was an award-winning documentarian. And he was our best researcher, our best writer. And I said to him, I want to do the secret plot to kill George Washington. It's going to be hard to research. You want to jump down the rabbit hole with me? And he said yes. And that's where the book started. And what was really interesting to us as we really got into the plot is what happened and, and how it kind of unfolded. It was a plot that really starts with George Washington had his own private bodyguards. And he had asked all of his top military leaders, he said, give me your four best men. He wanted the best of the best. George Washington personally narrowed it down to about 50 men. And those became what they called the General's Guard, some called the Commander's Guard. But the name that stuck was this title, the Lifeguards, because part of their job was to guard George Washington's life. And these were the men who turned on George Washington. These were the one men who were in the plot to come after George Washington. 
And it was a stunning revelation when we found that out for me. Uh, what I thought was so amazing is what George Washington does when he, they start getting wind of what's going on is he launches a secret committee that no one knows about. And he puts eventually John Jay in charge of the three men who are eventually in, in working in this committee. It's called the Committee on Conspiracies. And that's their job, to find out the conspiracies, find out who's plotting against them. And what's amazing is uh, it's led by John Jay, who eventually becomes the first Supreme Court justice. But at the time, in 1776, John Jay is just getting started. And he starts knocking on doors, trying to find suspects, pulling them out, interrogating them. What he's doing in the process is he's building America's first counterintelligence agency. And I can tell you that right now people will say, oh, that the precursor to the CIA is the OSS. It's not. It actually traces back to this moment and the plot to go after Washington. In fact, right now, in CIA headquarters in Arlington, um, in Langley, I should say, there is a room dedicated to John Jay, who they call the founding father of counterintelligence. And so you'll see that this plot also gives us the birth of counterintelligence in America, because we learn, and George Washington learns, you don't just need a good offense, a good army to win the war, you need a good defense too. You need to know what's coming. You need that intelligence. And what was, I think, fascinating to me as we looked into the story, you know, George Washington is one of the most, arguably the most famous American who ever lived. But we also, just as oddly, know the least about him as a person. He's not like Jefferson or John Adams, who writes these flowing letters home so we know all of his feelings. George Washington played everything close to the chest. Barely, you know, on the day that they, you know, they hang this man in front of 20,000 people, it barely mentions a, a, in his diary what happened. If I murdered someone in front of 20,000 people, I'd be like, your diary had a rough day. But George Washington instead, just again, barely mentions it. And we always take our heroes in America, we dip them in granite, and we hold them up to worship them. And we do them a huge disservice. Because anyone who you look up to, whether it's George Washington, any hero you have in your life, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, whoever it might be, have moments where they were scared and terrified, where they didn't know if they could go forward. And they do. And it was the same with George Washington. You know, the story that we tell, especially about the American Revolution, is, you know, we just held hands and the military came together. We dreamed of democracy. We took down the British, the greatest fighting force who ever lived. It's a wonderful, inspiring story. But it is by no means the true story. It is a legend and myth, and we're a country founded on legends and myths, and the legends and myths we love most are our own. Back then, you think we're divided today? We were just as divided back then. In 1776, in New York City, there were nearly as many loyalists on the, on the British side as there were patriots on the American side. And the people you were, you know, were your neighbors. You didn't know if they wanted to kill you. You had no idea. It was the same in our own military. There were just lots of regiments, as Massachusetts one, Virginia one, you know, Connecticut one. We weren't some unified army at the beginning. And, in fact, there's a scene in the book where you see George Washington uh, brings all of his troops, trying to bring them together in Harvard Square, in Harvard Yard in Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts regiment sees the uniforms of the Virginia regiment, which has something frilly on their uniforms, start making fun, mouthing off. Fight breaks out, and George Washington races in, sees his own men fighting, grabs them, shaking them, saying, what are you doing? Why, stop fighting with each other. We're on the same team. If ever there were a metaphor for where we are today, there it is. And we have to remember that our greatest heroes are the ones that pull us together, not to pull us apart. And speaking of that hero, it's amazing to watch George Washington in that moment. Because, you know, we love to tell this great story that George Washington's the greatest leader who ever lived, but 
if you look at the real history of it, if you really take it apart, you can see that George Washington, in the very first battle, the Battle of Brooklyn in 1776 when the British invade, we get our butts kicked. We don't win. We get our butts kicked. George Washington gets out generals. He doesn't have the experience of the British generals. In fact, he gets pinned down. He's got the British in front of him. He's got the East River behind him. This is the moment George Washington should die. There's no way to run. He should die in this moment. And instead, George Washington does the best thing he always does. He adapts. He plans a daring escape in the middle of the night. And as a fog rolls in on the East River, they commandeer every boat they can find along the East River. And one by one, slowly start putting their men aboard these boats. But what happens is something really incredible, is George Washington won't get on any of the boats until he makes sure that his men, even the lowest ones, are aboard first. They see him risking his life for theirs. And not that that's the magic moment that brings America together. There are plenty before and plenty after. But boy, does that show you what a leader is. It shows you. I love the when you read the first conspiracy, you get to see the secret plot against George Washington. But what I love even more uh, is that you get to see the depth of George Washington's character in this book. And it's so vital today, especially as we think of our own leaders. And Meltzer is so right. And the nation was deeply divided. Some estimate a third were with the British crown, a third were with the patriots, and a third were just hiding under their chairs, hoping it would blow over. And by the way, we have a terrific hour on the war inside Ben Franklin's house. The book was The Loyal Son by Daniel Mark Epstein. And it turns out Ben Franklin and his son were on opposing sides. The son was the royal governor of New Jersey, and Ben Franklin implored him to join the Patriots. He did not. And Franklin's own son ended up in a terrible prison in Litchfield, Connecticut, two years in solitary, and then ultimately exiled to England. The father and son never reconciled. So it is so true what Brad Meltzer said. The country, well, it was divided at its birth. When we come back, we'll continue with Brad Meltzer. The book is The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. Turn to best-selling author and friend of this show, Brad Meltzer. When we left off, Brad was telling us about the depth of George Washington's character from his book, The First Conspiracy. One of my favorite stories from the book. It's one of the last experiences I had. I was in uh, Kennebunkport, Maine, uh, a number of months ago, honoring Barbara Bush, who was a dear friend of, of my wife and I. We done a lot of literacy work with Mrs. Bush. There was no politics about it. Her dream was to teach everyone to read, whether you were old, whether you were young, black, white, Hispanic, immigrants, whatever you were from, that's how you unlock the American dream. I loved her for that dream. And we were honoring Mrs. Bush after she passed away. And now we know that President George H.W. Bush is sick. And we know what's happening at this point. It was a couple months ago, a few months ago, I should say. And they bring us into, um, they, they told me that they were bringing in some of his favorite authors to read to him. And they asked me to come in and read to him. And I said, I'd be honored. And I go into the office 
and um, and we know what's happening, right? This is the end, and it's me and my wife. It's President Bush is there, his service dog Sully, Secret Service leave, leave us alone, and we can tell what's about that. And they, in fact, they tell me that listen, he's he's sleeping a lot these days, and he's going to fall asleep within about ten minutes. So just you'll be in there ten minutes, and that, that, I said that, that'd be I'd be honored. And I walk in his office. There's a stack of about half a dozen books piled on his desk. One of them is my book, The First Conspiracy. He had given me a blurb on the book. President Clinton had given me a blurb on the book. Um, but this book, I give it to him, sent it to him months and months ago. This one looks like it's been read like over and over. It just looks dog-eared. And I say, sir, you want to read this book? And he's not really talking much back then. He says, mm-hmm. He can say, mm-hmm. And I pick up my copy of The First Conspiracy, and I brought this section, one of my favorite sections to read in there is where George Washington, for the very first time, has the Declaration of Independence read to his troops. And sure enough, in 10 minutes, President Bush has fallen asleep. And then I get to those words, those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in that moment, President Bush's eyes pop open. He's wide awake, locked on me, like as if the Declaration of Independence is just part of his lifeblood. And I get to the end of the chapter and I say, sir, you want to read another chapter? And he says, uh-huh. And I, we get to the end of that one. I say, sir, you want to read another? Uh-huh. And then another? Uh-huh. And we go through, and instead of being there for 10 minutes, I'm there for a full hour. And when I'm done, I shake his hand. And I say, thank you. I know it's the last time I'm ever going to see him. I thank him for, personally for what he's done for me and for the country. And we leave there. And I can tell you that when President Bush passed away, one of the things that struck me was that in so many of the tributes to him, I saw one word that was used over and over, which was this word, decency, decency. And yes, that's because he was such a decent guy, but it's also because I think as a culture right now, we're starving for decency. No politics about it. Whatever side you're on, Democrat or Republican, we're starving for decency. And I think it's why we love those leaders like George Washington, like George Bush, leaders who are modest and who are humble. Uh, And I think right now on social media, we celebrate those in our culture who are good at calling attention to themselves, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, who write in all caps and multiple exclamation points telling you that they have all the answers. But our best leaders are the modest, hardworking ones. Uh, and I think that when I worked on the first conspiracy, one of the great things that I was able to do was to get that reminder for myself in the form of George Washington. And with that, I'd like to read for you from the first chapter, the opening scene, the prologue, of the first conspiracy. New York, New York, April 1776. The trap is set. It's quiet on this night. Moonlight shines over a clearing in a dense wood. The silence is broken by the drumbeat of hooves in the distance, growing steadily louder. Soon a dozen uniformed men on horseback emerge from the blackness, followed by a dark covered coach. The party halts not far from a large wooden manor house that sits at the clearing's edge. A few of the riders dismount and prime their muskets, standing guard. They scan the clearing, apparently thinking all is safe. They're wrong. A moment later, the coach door opens, and a man in a long coat steps out from the darkness. His name is George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The trap is planned for him. He has no idea it's coming. 
For the last nine months since the day he was appointed to his command, Washington has had a nearly impossible task. Organize a scattered mess of backwards militias and untrained volunteers into a functioning national army. And not just into any army. This small, inexperienced, poorly equipped army needs to stand up to what is probably the biggest and most powerful military force in the world. By any normal measure, they don't stand a chance. And Washington knows this, just as he knows that with every decision he makes, thousands of young soldiers' lives could be lost. Tonight, even more is at risk. Washington has just arrived in the western woods of Manhattan, about two miles north from New York City's bustling commercial district that covers the island's southern tip. He's just finished a week-long journey from Boston, and he's here now to fortify the city against the first major British offensive of the war. What he's facing is terrifying. Sometime in the next few weeks or months, the massive fleet of the vaulted British Navy will swarm into New York Harbor. Hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of soldiers prepared to invade the city. They're coming. It's just a question of when. The colonies have placed all of their hope and trust in him. It is up to this one man, George Washington, to lead the small Continental Army and withstand the massive attack. Tonight, among the soldiers accompanying Washington, a few are dressed differently than the rest, in short blue and white coats with small brass buttons. They are known as the lifeguards, an elite group of specially trained soldiers who are handpicked to serve as Washington's bodyguards. He takes special pride in these soldiers, and he trusts them above all others. In the faint moonlight, Washington slowly walks toward the nearby manor house, which will serve as his headquarters for the next few critical weeks before the British attack. And what George Washington doesn't know is that here in Manhattan, the coming battle isn't the only thing he should fear. There are other enemies waiting for him, enemies more sinister than even the British Army. At this exact moment, three miles away due south in the New York Harbor, a ship is anchored in the darkness. On board is one of the most powerful men of the colonies, the exiled governor of New York, and he is masterminding a clandestine plan to strike a knife into the heart of the colony's rebellion. In the dead of night, small boats carrying spies shuttle back and forth to him, delivering intelligence from shore. At the same time, two miles away from where Washington now stands, the mayor of New York City, working in concert with the governor, carries a secret cache of money. His plan? To tempt Washington's soldiers to betray their army and their country in a breathtaking act of treason. And several blocks from the mayor's office in one of the city's underground jails, three prisoners whisper to each other in a dank cell out of earshot of the guards. They have no idea that their quiet murmurs could change the future of the continent. They are all players in an extraordinary plot, a deadly plot against George Washington. Most extraordinary of all, some of the key members of this plot are in George Washington's own inner circle the very men in whom he has placed his greatest trust. You could call it America's first great conspiracy, but at this moment, America doesn't yet exist. Some of the details of this scheme are still shrouded in mystery, but history does provide enough clues for an astonishing story. This is a story of soldiers, spies, traitors, redcoats, turncoats, criminals, prostitutes, politicians, great men, terrible men, and before it's over, the largest public execution ever to take place on North American shores. It all happens amazingly within days of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's not all. The discovery of this plot and the effort to investigate it led colonial authorities to devise new systems of intelligence gathering and counterespionage. In many ways, this strange plot against George Washington would lead to the establishment of a whole new field of American spycraft, 
now known as counterintelligence. At the center of it is a deadly conspiracy against one man, the man on whose life the very future of America depends. This is Brad Meltzer. You're listening to Our American Stories. And thank you to Brad for that reading and for his terrific book, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. Available at bradmeltzer.com and everywhere that books are sold. This is Lee Habib, Brad Meltzer, the story of George Washington, and the secret plot to kill him here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Old Man in the Sea is a short novel written by Ernest Hemingway in 1951 in Cuba and published in 52. It was the last major work of fiction by Hemingway. It's one of his most famous works, and it tells the story of Santiago, an aging fisherman who struggles with a giant marlin far out in the Gulf Stream off the coast of Cuba. We join Santiago at the climax of this American classic, with a dramatic reading by the great Charlton Heston. For an hour, the old man had been seeing black spots before his eyes, and the sweat salted his eyes and salted the cut over his eye and on his forehead. He was not afraid of the black spots. They were normal at the tension that he was pulling on the line. Twice, though, he had felt faint and dizzy, and that had worried him. I could not fail myself and die on a fish like this, he said. Now that I have him coming so beautifully, God help me endure. I'll say a hundred Our Fathers and a hundred Hail Marys, but I cannot say them now. Consider them, said, he thought. I'll say them later. Just then he felt a sudden banging and jerking on the line he held with his two hands. It was sharp and hard-feeling and heavy. He's hitting the wire leader with his spear, he thought. That was bound to come. He had to do that. It may make him jump, though. I would rather he stayed circling now. The jumps were necessary for him to take air. But after that, each one can widen the opening of the hook wound, and he can throw the hook. Don't jump, fish, he said. Don't jump. The fish hit the wire several times more, and each time he shook his head, the old man gave up a little line. I must hold his pain where it is, he thought. Mine does not matter. I can control mine but his pain could drive him mad. After a while, the fish stopped beating at the wire and started circling slowly again. The old man was gaining line steadily now, but he felt faint again. He lifted some seawater with his left hand and put it on his head. Then he put more on and rubbed the back of his neck. I have no cramps, he said. He'll be up soon, and I can last. You have to last. Don't even speak of it. He kneeled against the bow and for a moment slipped the line over his back again. I'll rest now when he goes out in the circle and then stand up and work on him when he comes in, he decided. It was a great temptation to rest in the bow and let the fish make one circle by himself without recovering any line. But when the strain showed the fish had turned to come toward the boat, the old man rose to his feet and started the pivoting and the weaving pulling that brought in all the line he gained. I'm tireder than I have ever been, he thought, 
And now the trade wind is rising. But that will be good to take him in with. I need that badly. I'll rest on the next turn as he goes out, he said. I feel much better. Then in two or three turns more, I will have him. His straw hat was far in the back of his head, and he sank down into the bow with a pull of the line as he felt the fish turn. You work now, fish, he thought. I'll take you at the turn. The sea had risen considerably, but it was a fair weather breeze, and he had to have it to get home. I'll just steer south and west, he said. A man is never lost at sea, and it is a long island. It was on the third turn that he saw the fish first. He saw him first as a dark shadow that took so long to pass under the boat that he could not believe its length. No, he said. He can't be that big. But he was that big. And at the end of this circle, he came to the surface only 30 yards away. And the man saw his tail out of water. It was higher than a big scythe blade and a very pale lavender above the dark blue water. It raked back, and as the fish swam just below the surface, the old man could see his huge bulk and the purple stripes that banded him. His dorsal fin was down, and his huge pectorals were spread wide. On this circle, the old man could see the fish's eye and the two gray sucking fish that swam around him. Sometimes they attached themselves to him. Sometimes they darted off. Sometimes they would swim easily in his shadow. They were each over three feet long, and when they swam fast, they lashed their whole bodies like eels. The old man was sweating now, but from something else besides the sun. On each calm, placid turn the fish made, he was gaining line, and he was sure that in two turns more he would have a chance to get the harpoon in. But I must get him close, 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 he thought. I mustn't try for the head, I must get the heart. Be calm and strong, old man, he said. On the next circle, the fish's back was out, but he was a little too far from the boat. On the next circle, he was still too far away, but he was higher out of water, and the old man was sure that by gaining some more line, he could have him alongside. He'd rigged his harpoon long before, and its coil of light rope was in a round basket, and the end was made fast to the bit in the bow. The fish was coming in on his circle now, calm and beautiful looking, and only his great tail moving. The old man pulled on him all that he could to bring him closer. For just a moment, the fish turned a little on his side. Then he straightened himself and began another circle. I moved him, the old man said. I moved him then. He felt faint again now, but he held on the great fish all the strain that he could. I moved him, he thought. Maybe this time I can get him over. Pull hands, he thought. Hold up, legs. Last for me, head, last for me. You never went. This time I'll pull him over. But when he put all of his effort on, starting it well out before the fish came alongside and pulling with all his strength, the fish pulled partway over and then righted himself and swam away. Fish, the old man said. Fish. You're going to have to die anyway. You have to kill me, too. That way nothing is accomplished, he thought. His mouth was too dry to speak, but he could not reach for the water now. I must get him alongside this time, he thought. I'm not good for many more turns. Yes, you are, he told himself. You're good forever. On the next turn, he nearly had him. 
But again the fish righted himself and swam slowly away. You are killing me, fish, the old man thought. But you have a right to. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or a calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. Now, you're getting confused in the head, he thought. You must keep your head clear. Keep your head clear and know how to suffer like a man. Or a fish, he thought. Clear up, head, he said in a voice he could hardly hear. Clear up. Twice more it was the same on the turns. I do not know, the old man thought. He'd been in the point of feeling himself go each time. I do not know, but I will try it once more. He tried it once more, and he felt himself going when he turned the fish. The fish righted himself and swam off again slowly with a great tail weaving in the air. I'll try it again, the old man promised, although his hands were mushy now, and he could only see well in flashes. He tried it again, and it was the same. So he thought and he felt himself going before he started. I will try it once again. He took all his pain and what was left of his strength and his long-gone pride, and he put it against the fish's agony, and the fish came over onto his side and swam gently on his side, his bill almost touching the planking of the skiff, and started to pass the boat, long, deep, wide, silver, and barred with purple and interminable in the water. The old man dropped the line and put his foot on it and lifted the harpoon as high as he could and drove it down with all his strength and more strength he had just summoned into the fish's side just behind the great chest fin that rose high in the air to the altitude of the man's chest. He felt the iron go in and he leaned on it and drove it further and then pushed all his weight after it. Then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. He seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. Then he fell into the water with a crash that sent spray over the old man and over all of the skiff. The old man felt faint and sick, and he could not see well, but he cleared the harpoon line and let it run slowly through his raw hands. And when he could see, he saw the fish was on his back with his silver belly up. The shaft of the harpoon was projecting at an angle from the fish's shoulder, and the sea was discoloring with the red of the blood from his heart. First it was dark as a shoal in the blue water that was more than a mile deep. Then it spread like a cloud. The fish was silvery and still and floated with the waves. The old man looked carefully in the glimpse of vision that he had. Then he took two turns of the harpoon line around the bit in the bow and laid his head on his hands. Keep my head clear, he said against the wood of the bow. I am a tired old man, but I have killed this fish which is my brother. 
And now I must do the slave work. And what a reading of a great, great American novel, Charlton Heston, the late, great Charlton Heston. In 1953, The Old Man in the Sea was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it was cited by the Nobel Committee as contributing to their awarding of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Hemingway in 1954. The Old Man in the Sea, here on Our American Stories. Thank you.